Welcome back to Balagan. I'm Kobe Cohen. Israel does not have a constitution, but a series of basic laws that are supposed to be the foundations for a future constitution. Most basic laws are not drawing so much attention, but one is unique. Since enacted on March 17, 1992, What are these basic laws? I mean, I gave a short uh, introduction, but you can tell us a little more about it. Right. So these basic laws are sort of a, a constitutional substitute. What we have to remember is that on May 15, 1948, when the State of Israel was founded and David Ben-Gurion read the Declaration of Independence, May 14, that is, sorry, then within the Declaration of Independence, They announce that a constitution will be adopted by an elected constitution assembly not later than 1st October 1948. So they gave themselves, the, the founding fathers, basically four and a half months to write a constitution by the constitution assembly. And indeed, a constitution assembly was elected, but it failed to produce a constitution. And what it did at that point is said, okay, let's have elections for a regular Knesset, a regular parliament, and bestow on that parliament the authority and the task of finalizing a constitution. And the first Knesset was elected and again failed to do so. And then in 1951, what the Knesset, this is now already the second one, decided was that okay, we cannot agree on a full constitutional text. And by the way, the reason they could not agree was mostly disputes between the seculars and the ultra-Orthodox. Much of it were about questions of equality uh, for women. And therefore they said, okay, let's not remain hostage of this commitment to a constitution. Every time we manage to agree on one chapter of this constitution, we'll pass that one as a basic law. And when we finish the whole project, when all the different basic laws will pass the Knesset, then all of them together will join to be the constitution of the state of Israel. Since then and up to this day, they didn't manage to finish all the chapters of the intended constitution. And it was debated for many years what exactly is the status Of these basic laws, are they uh, supra laws? Are they higher in what we call the normative hierarchy than regular laws, statutes of the parliament, or are they just the same as any other statute with a fancier name, basic law? That is known actually as the Harari Compromise, named after Indeed. the MK, the member of the Knesset who brought up this uh, alternative solution. And since then, until today, we have uh, 13 basic laws that uh, were enacted. And each one of them actually has a different status in the meaning that uh, 
each one of them needs a different majority to make amendments in, or it's not clear how they are being made. We can say that there is a big balagan around it. I think that until 1992, most of these basic laws were quite, I would say, consensual. And they were more, I would say, dealing with the entity, like the basic law of the Knesset, basic law of the cabinet, and basic law of the president, that were setting the grounds to Israeli democracy. But in 1992, 17th of March, actually, the Knesset enacted the basic law, human dignity and liberty. That was the first uh, time that Israel actually debated about declaring the basic, I would say, human rights in Israel. Is that correct to say that? Indeed, those that they could agree upon, again, because what happened was indeed that starting with the basic law, Knesset, and all the way up to, uh, well, through basic laws, like you mentioned, the presidency, Jerusalem, the military, the government, the parliament, no, as we said, et cetera, et cetera, all these basic laws were institutional. Most constitutions in the world we can divide or, or include two different parts. One is the institutional part. How is this country managed? And the other is the substantive part. What is this country about, you know, and what rights does it protect? If you think about U.S. history, right? So we had the Constitution first enacted without the Bill of Rights. So it was just an institutional constitution talking about the three branches, the presidency, the Congress and the judiciary. And two years later came the Bill of Rights. In the case of Israel, over 50 years, we did uh, all these institutional basic laws and or 44 years. And after 44 years came the first basic law, the first chapter of the constitution dealing with human rights. Now, the intention was as early as the 60s to pass a basic law, which will be called basic law, human and civil rights. And that would be the equivalent of the Bill of Rights of the U.S. Constitution. So that was supposed to be one general basic law enumerating all those rights that receive constitutional status in the state of Israel. But they could not agree again on all the rights that should be included. For instance, as I mentioned earlier, the right to equality was a focus of major debate because, among other things, but mostly because the ultra-Orthodox feared that the Supreme Court, for instance, will force them to have women judges on the rabbinical courts. It was already during the 80s, there were a lot of debates about women in religious councils, women as Uh, rabbinical uh, yeah the equivalent uh, of lawyers in the rabbinical court yeah so they were very wary of including equality in the basic law and thus at one point the people that mostly pushed this law and we need to mention three names and two of them are from the Likud so one name is uh, Professor Amnon Rubinstein from Meretz Shinui at the time, and uh, shortly after that, he emerged into Meretz. Dan Merido, which was Minister of Justice on behalf of Likud. And Urielin, which uh, member of Knesset, Urielin, which was head of the Constitutional Committee in the Knesset, him too on behalf of the Likud. So this is important to remember. So the three of them 
said, well, again, in the spirit of the Harari Compromise, let's pass a basic law, including those rights that we can agree upon, that we can achieve a wide consensus on with the ultra-Orthodox and the Arab case and the right and the left. And we'll go on fighting regarding the others in the future. And that is what became to be basic law, human dignity, and liberty. Eventually, what you're telling us is that the center-right of Israel of 1992 was the side that enacted this law. So it was more consensual than uh, what we can think of. Because if it came from the center-right, then I Indeed. guess the left-wing supported it. The ultra-Orthodox didn't support it. And how did it go with no, the... No, 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 that's wrong. No, the ultra-Orthodox supported it as well at the time. They supported uh, it, it at the There were voices against it all over the place, mostly, I mean, in the right. But this would not have come without the, um, not just support, but the central role that Likud ministers played. And it actually would not have come to the world without Prime Minister Shamir of the Likud giving it a green light. And it would not have passed you know, as easily, and it passed with a big majority. And it was definitely brought as an agreement between the coalition, the Likud-led coalition at the time, and the labor-led opposition at the time. There was some reservations from left that it didn't go far enough, but the left did support it, so merits parties as well as labor. And there were some reservations from the right and members that actually voted against it, but the center of Likud, which at the time was considered right, not center-right, that was the right of Israel, definitely supported it. Eventually, we're talking about human rights. What can be so, I would say, argumentative or uh, upsetting in this uh, law that uh, now it takes a lot of fire from some parts of in Israeli society? Right. So, you know, you mentioned the ultra-Orthodox opposition to it at a later stage, and there's a famous quote of Arya Deri, leader of Shas, that said that... Uh, Even if they want to turn the Ten Commandments into a basic law, I'm going to vote against it because I have no idea what the Supreme Court is going to make of it. And what happened is, I think, two things generated more opposition on the right wing. So the first was when the court, in a subsequent case, case in 1995, declared that the basic laws include in them the authority of of the court to strike down parliament legislation. Now, that should have not been a surprise to anyone. Anyone who read the papers before the law was enacted could have read the gentlemen I mentioned earlier, um, Lean and Merido and um, Rubenstein, but many others that clearly said this is the intention of the law, to give the court the power to invalidate legislation that... disproportionately uh, violates human rights. But, you know, it's one thing, I guess, to know it in, in theory and another thing to see it in practice. I think there is just a myth perpetuated and, and, and uh, uh, repeated by the right wing as if the court made up this authority in some sort of, of uh, coup. And that is simply untrue. There is something else the court did, which is a little more controversial, or I'd say, well, both are controversial, but this one has a little more basis for the controversy. The basic law of human dignity and liberty enumerates 
several rights that it protects, and not a whole lot of them. So it protects human dignity and liberty, as you can uh, learn from its title. And then also the right to property. It provides for protection of life, body, and dignity. And it protects the right uh, of movement, of, of uh, any person to leave Israel and any Israeli to enter Israel, which you know, became a big thing during the COVID, and the right to privacy. So not a very long list of rights. What happened later was that the Supreme Court, in many different cases, said, well, human dignity is a general right that includes many sub-rights, because when you violate someone's freedom of speech, when you censor someone, or when you tell a group they cannot demonstrate and make their views heard, then you violate their human dignity. So the court found that free speech is a, what they called an unenumerated right protected by this basic law. The same with equality. The court said that some aspects of equality, not all of them, but many aspects of equality are a component of human dignity. And when someone is arbitrarily discriminated against or discriminated against based on race or nationality or the likes, his human dignity is violated. That move is, I'd say, um, more controversial. I think it's mostly evident when the court ruled that women should be allowed to join the Air Force training, uh, Air Force Academy. The Alice Miller. Uh, the Alice Miller case, indeed. The court said then discrimination based on gender is violation of human dignity. I think that's totally true. The problematic part of it is that it is exactly because gender equality, that the word equality was not included in this basic law. So the court found that uh, something that was intentionally left out of the basic law actually appears in it, hidden behind the title of human dignity. That indeed created lots of controversies later on. So now we're getting to these days. I want to ask you a couple of questions around it. I mean, of course, when you're coming to human rights and human dignity, mainly in a state like Israel that still has some security issues and the unclear status of the West Bank and then the Gaza Strip and the Palestinians. What were, you know, the biggest clashes between, I don't know if it's between the Supreme Court and the law enforcement or the security so, forces, I would say. So first of all, we need to remember that the vast majority of uh, petitions to the Supreme Court to invalidate laws are denied. The Supreme Court does not, you know, happily strike down Knesset legislation. It is, it is actually very reserved from doing so. And the first uh, cases where the Supreme Court did this were actually very uncontroversial, or, or I'd say not on very heated topics. Things like regulation of managers of investment portfolios and um, radio stations uh, uh, licensing and things like that. The more debated cases came later on. So one of the first, uh, if we think about the security establishment, as you mentioned, was about denial of 
compensation for Palestinians that were damaged by Israeli military activity in the West Bank. The Knesset legislated a statute basically exempting the state from paying any form of compensation for any Palestinian that suffered any harm from uh, Israeli IDF activity in the West Bank, whether as part of actual military actions or not. And the court said, well, property is a constitutional right. You cannot deny someone of their property rights unless this is really the tool to do so is narrowly tailored to some legitimate interest. And in this case, the court found it was not narrowly tailored. So this was not about compromising security in any way. At the end of the day, it was about money. But it got people on the right very upset. Why do we need to compensate Palestinians for our actions? But that was a very simple application of the basic law. It said people have a constitutional right to property, and it cannot be violated by just the whim of, of a legislator. I want to mention another series of cases that became very heated, although, again, they don't fall under any of the problems I mentioned earlier with how the court interpreted human dignity. And that is the series of cases about the jailing or the detention of refugees from Africa, uh, mostly from Eritrea and Sudan. The government, in, in an attempt to mostly to satisfy public opinion among the right and the far right that was very anti-refugees, the government created these detention centers in the far south, in the middle of the desert, and tried to lock up people that were indeed, well, did not enter Israel lawfully, but that Israel recognized and accepted that should be protected because they fled areas of war and cannot be returned to their countries. Israel gave them a special status saying that it does not intend to deport them, but at the same time wanted to uh, lock them up in detention centers in the middle of the desert. And the Supreme Court said, no, there is a constitutional right for liberty, and you cannot offer people nothing but detention. There was a, a host of other problems with that law. It was irrational in many ways, it just not, did not serve any purpose other, again, than providing for public opinion. Yeah, that's what I wanted to say, that then a political uh, it was a benefit totally political of, uh, of one side. Totally. But political uh, you know, interests of, of a certain party or prime minister do not justify locking thousands of people up in the desert. So this was not complicated legally. And indeed, all the justices on the court, some of them known as conservatives and, and people who were reserved in their willing to uh, apply the basic laws on Knesset legislation and strike down legislation, even they all voted in favor of striking down this law. So these are two examples for court decisions that were very, very controversial, that created lots of backlash against the court, although they did nothing but a very basic application of the basic laws as they were legislated by the Knesset. 
I think that eventually the politicians are uh, a little smarter than they look like. And most of them know that some of the laws, mainly in the last couple of years, are made more for public opinion, just like you are saying. And they know that the Supreme Court will throw the law back to them. Then they can tell their people, oh, listen, we tried, but it's the Supreme Court that they're the ones who don't want us to, to govern. Like uh, in the last Indeed. couple of years, what we hear about the problem of governance in, in Israel, as some right. politicians portray. As you know, we have this uh, phrase in Hebrew called, uh, hold me or I'll go wild. So sometimes it seems that the Knesset follows that uh, notion by saying, you know, I'll just behave like crazy, assuming the Supreme Court will save me for myself, right? And the Supreme Court will sort of take care and um, prevent some international embarrassment to Israel. It's important to remember that when the Sharon government led the withdrawal from Gaza, disengagement. Uh, the disengagement, the first thing the right wing did was rushed to the Supreme Court and asked to invalidate the law authorizing the disengagement. And to a partial extent, they succeeded as far as the uh, reparations for the people evacuated was concerned. So the Supreme Court struck down some clauses about the reparations that it thought didn't go far enough in compensating settlers. One of the Supreme Court justices thought that they should strike down the whole disengagement legislation, but uh, he was uh, a sole voice in that sense. Another major debate that is going with us uh, many years is the issue of drafting of uh, Yeshiva Buchel's to the military. Yeah. The first time it declared this whole arrangement under which any Yeshiva Buchel is exempt from military service There was no legislation, and the court just said something very simple. The Minister of Defense, Security, himself cannot take this decision. The Knesset has to. But when the Knesset did decide to, in some more subtle ways, exempt young ultra-Orthodox men from military service, the court said, well, that can't work under basic law, human liberty and dignity, because it is a violation of equality to say that a yeshiva bochel can be exempt of military service, but no, for instance, university student can be exempt. Why is the will of one to study the scriptures justify exempting from military service, but others are not uh, exempt? And that was more controversial, and that, that actually meant a split court, because as I said, equality is not enumerated in the basic law. It is just a, a unenumerated right the court found to be part of human dignity and repeated attempts of the Knesset to legislate some way for Haredim out of military service were struck down by the court. And this is an ongoing debacle that we still see unfolding against our eyes. So we're still waiting to hear what the court has to say about the, the current arrangement. So if this basic law is in a way upsetting so many politicians, why they don't just go ahead and change it, you know, make that's some the amendments 60, in there? That's the $64,000 question. And I think that's the proof that A, this constitutional revolution, as it was called, is here to stay. And that no serious politician, no 
minister of justice, even those most vehemently opposed in, in, you know, in rhetoric to the basic law, ever suggested just doing the very simple thing of canceling it. The Knesset could have done that. The majority was there many, many times. But at the end of the day, all the more serious political leaders, not talking about some backbenchers in the Knesset shouting all kinds of yeah. uh, you know, far-right slurs, but prime ministers, justice ministers, understand that it is unacceptable today, if you want to be part of the democratic world, to say, I don't want any sort of limitation on the legislation power of politicians. No one today really, even if they want to deep down in their hearts or minds, they dare not say that we do not accept the idea that there are some things the Knesset cannot do. The most they say these days, and those are legitimate arguments than even Aharon Barak, the Supreme Court president that you know, is most identified with these basic laws and their yes. interpretation, accepts this to some extent. The most they say is we don't want the Supreme Court to be able to uh, strike down any Knesset legislation. For instance, maybe if it was voted by 80 uh, members, uh, two-thirds of the Knesset, it should be sort of shielded from judicial intervention. Or maybe the court should strike down a law only by a six to three majority, let's say two-thirds of a bench and a case. Okay, there are many different ideas sort of to limit to some extent the procedure of striking down laws. But no serious politician today even dares mention just simply rewinding history and going back to 1992. Yeah. So we were talking about the ultra-Orthodox and we we're talking about the right wing. And eventually, even they actually appeal to the Supreme Court in Israel when they need to. And they know that they will get the defense. Just like in recent election, we saw that even Itamar Ben-Gvir appealed to the Supreme right. Court when he... Uh, and won. And, and won. Even yeah. though he's a right-wing extremist, most will agree that he's racist. <laughs> yeah. But he was still able to go by appealing to the Supreme Court and basing his case on this law, right? Well, that, that has more to do with the basic law Knesset and the um, criteria there to be prevented from running in elections. But this is a major shift that happened in the right wing over the years. It's important to mention this. The great proponent of authorizing the Supreme Court to strike down laws was Menachem Begin. Right. Menachem Begin, as early as 1952, published articles why a democracy has to give the court the power of judicial review. And he wrote some wonderful articles about this issue and about what he called the supremacy, not of the court, but the supremacy of law. Of the law. Yeah. And he said, you know, we must not allow passing majorities and, and you know, coalitions limited in time and, and driven by short-sighted political interests to violate basic human rights. He said that's more, giving that uh, authority to 15 justices is more democratic than giving uh, unlimited authority to present members who are indeed elected by the public, but don't always represent it. They have their own political interests. Yeah. 
But what we see today, in, and today and in the past you know, 20, 30 years, is a right wing that strongly identifies with the message that there should be no limits on the will of the majority. The whole idea that some boundaries need to be put to the power of politicians is foreign to them. And they just think, you know, the winner takes it all. And a majority can and should be able to do whatever it wants uh, to minority groups. And for the ultra-Orthodox, you know, they're, they're not the majority, but they have much faith in their political ability to play the system right. in a way that it will always work for their benefit. So for them, too, any principled limitation on their political power just runs against their narrow political interests. So this has simply become a game of removing any limits on power. And that today is the deep divide. Do we think there should be limits on power? Principle and based. Exactly. Checks and balances. Separation and, of power, just like in the U. Even the United States has it. <laughs> even the United States has it. Yeah. Even um, a president like Trump couldn't do anything he wanted. Yeah. I hope that won't be put to test again. Yes. Yeah. I, I agree with you on that. <laughs> so one of the interesting things, by the way, is that at least on two separate occasions, the right wings went you know, out of their way to interfere in appointments of presidents of the Supreme Court that they considered more conservative and anti-Balakis in their approach. And both times, the right wing was uh, seriously disappointed later. I'm talking about appointments of Asher Gronis. Uh, Asher Gronis and later Miriam Naol. Miriam Naol. Uh, recently passed away. Indeed, yeah. passed away last month to preside over the Supreme Court. And these two justices are indeed considered conservative, but they are not conservative in the sense of delivering for conservative politicians. They're just conservative in their interpretation of legal power. But both of them, more than once, supported striking down legislation that they thought is simply violating human rights that are protected by the basic laws, maybe less often than others. But when it comes to their legal views, they never said, and, and no one should have thought they, they would say, that there should be no limitation on Knesset's power. So do you think we should expect if, like for now, we have the change block ruling the, the government, but do you think that a future government that may be another coalition of a right-wing slash Haredim uh, coalition will make any amendments in this law, or do you think we should uh, expect it to stay the way it is? Um, so I think there are two things to, important to mention as matters of current affairs, and, and then I'll say my conclusion from that. In spite of what I said earlier, that Ali Adeli said that he would never support any new basic law, even if it was the uh, basic law Ten Commandments. The Knesset did pass a new basic law five years ago, which was the basic law Israel as the Jewish, as the nation state of the, the nation Jewish state, people. Yeah. A controversial basic law, but just to show that they also use this tool and see it as valuable. And of course, there was a plethora of amendments to the basic law government over Netanyahu's attempt or to Work his way power. out of the political deadlock that we were in in uh, 2019 through 2021. 
the new government, not so new anymore, this the year old government, the block of change as you titled them, created a committee that the goal of which is to pass a basic law legislation. And that basic law is supposed to lay the grounds for an official procedure in which the Supreme Court strikes down legislation. So to legitimize what some people argued was uh, illegitimate, the power of the Supreme Court to strike down Knesset legislation, but also, as I mentioned earlier, to set some limits to that power or some procedural requirements. And this is a committee in which all the different factions in the government are represented. So you have Meretz there and Likud and Yemina and Labor. From what I hear from members of the committee, there is not much progress made there yet. I think we should all keep our fingers crossed that they succeed because Auenbach will be the first to say this. Uh, even if there needs to be some compromise made in terms of procedures to, under which the, the court uses this authority, um, or under which the Knesset can be shielded from it, the fact that the Knesset now in 2022 will pass a new basic law that you know sets aside all arguments against this as some usurpation of power, some coup is very important. And that said, I'm not very optimistic. Will a future government roll things back? That's a big question. I don't know. It depends how crazy a future government will be, of course. You can't rule that out. What fears me is less of of a sort of blunt facial attack on the law, but more uh, attempts to incite against the, the Supreme Court and to try and deter the Supreme Court from using its power through creating, you know, too much or disproportional public outcry over very basic elementary expected decisions of the Supreme Court. We saw we were close to that with the refugees issue. You know, on the on the ultra-Orthodox going to the military, it was hard to mobilize people against the Supreme Court because we know the majority of the Israeli public poses this exemption. Right. I think the majority of the Israeli public also supports a more humane treatment of refugees, but there are very, very sort of uh, active and um, borderly violent and anyhow very vocal political elements that are inciting against the refugees. And, And it was very easy to turn people around against the Supreme Court saying, you know, the Supreme Court doesn't care about Israel. It only cares about these refugees from Sudan or Eritrea. Those are the things that are worrying me, that the Supreme Court will be just rendered unable to carry out its its tasks. Yeah, it is troubling, but I want to stay optimistic. (laughs) So I want to ask you eventually, what were the benefits of enacting that law? I mean, when we're talking about Israel, eventually it promoted Israel one step further as a strong democracy, mainly in the Middle East, that is not known to have too many democracies. <laughs> I would want to point to three benefits. The first you mentioned, right? So this became a cornerstone of Israeli democracy. This became one of the tools that protects Israel as a democracy from all kinds of passing 
craziness passing times in which people are, for their own political interests, willing to violate very basic democratic principles. So it stabilizes Israeli democracy. That would be number one. Number two, we just need to remember a lot of people whose lives were uh, and whose rights were protected in the most practical terms. So if we think about those thousands of refugees who were uh, detained, if we think, you know, the Supreme Court um, struck down legislation of creating a private prison in Israel, we know what private prisons are leading to in many places across the United States. So you just have to think of those prisoners who were saved from similar fate that we see in some places in the United States. Uh, we can think of the underprivileged poor people who were denied social security if they owned a car. This ridiculous piece of legislation was struck down by the Supreme Court saying, again, you cannot deny basic social rights just because a person uh, owns a car. And then I can go on and on. So the second benefit is just a benefit for citizens and people whose rights were protected. That's the most basic elementary thing. The third benefit I want to mention is the ethos of Israeli democracy, is the educational value of having these basic laws. You know, every child in the United States can uh, uh, cite some basic rights from the Bill of Rights, right? Everyone knows what it means to take the fifth, or everyone knows what it means to have, uh, you know, your First Amendment rights to, to say what you wish. And the right um, to bear arms, of course. Uh, yeah, of course, above <laughs> all others. Israel didn't have that. It doesn't fully have that yet. But the fact that there is some basic document that lays out that some things are above politics, some things we as a nation agreed to protect from politics, to set aside, has immense educational value. Israel is about protecting the liberty and the dignity of people, and that is a basic principle of the country today that is beyond politics. And that is something, you know, any teacher in civics class can teach, and uh, let alone, you know, the Supreme Court reminds us quite often through its legislation. And I think that has a, a strong social impact that goes way beyond the law. Our time is almost up, and I think we have a lot more we can cover about this law, but it's late now in Israel. I mean, we're recording it, it uh, when it's almost midnight in Israel. Dr. Pella just came back from Cyprus, specially to record this episode. Yeah, well, not specially to record it, but, yes, but he <laughs> gave us the that. time. So I really want to thank you for uh, sharing all of your knowledge with us thank and you, explaining to us about this basic law and... It was a pleasure to have you with us. Boy. Same here. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Have a good day. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and wanted to thank you for joining me. If you like my podcast, feel free to rank it and share it with others. I also invite you to subscribe to my podcast so you will get updates when a new episode is on the air. And last but not least, I invite you to check my website, Balagan www.balagan.ltd for more content about Israel's history and politics. Bye for now and have a great day.